Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. We're talking about a great film tonight, a wonderful, fun film tonight. But we're gearing up for our Guilty Pleasure series. Right. And uh, as we were... (laughs) I have a question for you. I wonder if you can pull this out. I found as i've been thinking about the movie that i find that i am pleasured guiltily by right (laughs) i i'm guilty about a lot of media that i consume right and i i so i thought i would ask you andy can you think of not a movie but an album that you are guilty about loving hmm Gosh, I probably could, given time to think about it, because I'm sure there is one. Yeah. I mean, I could go back to, uh, you know, albums from my uh, youth, like Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Yeah. Are you guilty about that? I mean, I like Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I was, <laughs> I was just that was that was all me. Whatever. It, that was my first CD. That was like my big transition from cassette tapes to CDs. Really. And that was my first CD. So I listened to that album a lot. Fascinating. Yeah. I, so I guess I, I guess that's guilty because I can't. I I don't know if there's a whole lot of really good songs on there, but <laughs> but I still like it. Yeah, you can't. Well, Frankie goes to Hollywood. Come on. <laughs> For me, I my CD, the CD that I'm most guilty about, is is one that I um I'm just so I'm wildly outside of the target demographic for this cd it is (laughs) i don't even know how i i literally stumbled upon it tonight listening to an uh uh, just a preset mix on uh, apple music and as i was doing that uh it just came out of the blue i haven't heard it since college and um it is lisa loeb's firecracker a it's lisa loeb like that doesn't even begin to characterize my listening habits. And when you look at the when you look at the CD, you look at the cover. And I, you know, when I found it, I got it because I was a subscriber to BMG. You know the BMG, like the music service. You remember oh, that? Oh, one of you, those. Yep. You I check do the remember. little boxes. You get like ten yep. CDs a month. So I, you know, I got a lot of CDs out of that. And this was just one that it was like the extra promotional CD that they would sometimes throw in because you have been a member for you know six months and you <laughs> spend a lot of money with us. Here's another CD that you, we thought you might like, which is totally out of the blue. Why would they do that? And and so this is a this is pink. It's like got a pink painting. Of Lisa Loeb lying on her side, like like in a man's pink man's shirt, and uh, a pink man's shirt. Well, it's like a pink <laughs> shirt that that looks like it's a boyfriend shirt. You know, it's like oh, so her, it's not it's not a shirt belonging to a pink man. No, as far as I, well, I don't think we have enough evidence. Okay, I don't right. think we know evidence enough to say that. Right. But it is full of, of such hits as "I Do" and "Truthfully" and "Falling in Love" and "Let's Forget About It." 
and Dance with the Angels. That's the that's the go-to hit, uh, though uh, How is another one that I, I found myself repeating a lot in those days. And I would always listen to it in secret uh, because it was so, so outside of my wheelhouse. At the same time, I was listening to, you know, I was listening to a lot of stuff. It was mostly like, I mean, in college, we were listening to like Big Head Todd and Dave Matthews. And, I, you know, right, right. that was our kind of thing. And uh, I don't know. I guess you could probably, somebody would characterize Lisa Lobis <laughs> in the, in the of wheelhouse of Big Head Todd and Dave Matthews. But I did not at the time. And I, yeah, <laughs> I felt really guilty about that. And I found myself in the kitchen cooking tonight. I was, we were, we were making dinner and I said, I am feeling guilty just presenting this to my family who had never heard it before. <laughs> I'm feeling guilty right now. It's just total shame just even talking about it. But that's it. I'm trying to warm up to next week. I see. Because I, I read your letterbox review of my guilty pleasure, and I have to tell you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for giving that one away, Stephen Smart. <laughs> <laughs> Guns blazing. That's right. Uh, looking forward to that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we do have a little bit of follow-up. Uh, That's right. We have the, the sad news of E.L. Doctorow's passing. That's right, and uh, timely with a tweet that we just got from Brendan Roberts, who wrote, Just finished listening to the latest episode with mention of E.L. Doctorow, and then heard he died. That's what I call a powerful podcast. So, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, uh, sending that tweet in. It was uh, odd timing on our part that, uh, we had, that Pete had just mentioned him. That is a, that is a loss. He was a, he was a fantastic... Uh, he, was, he was quite a writer, uh, quite a pen. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I saw him just a couple of years ago at, at the uh, Chautauqua Institution. He he was a guest and um, just delivered a fantastic lecture. And so it just seems like uh, like he was still going strong. So very very sad to hear him passing. Absolutely. Uh, we also do have a blot spot. Uh, this is following up on the Roaring Twenties. Ben Lott has come back and he says. I feel like I generally agreed with you guys in the Roaring Twenties. It was a fine movie with some good acting performances. However, it never impressed me or stood out above other gangster movies. Plus, I'm not particularly enamored with gangster movies anyway because I find it hard to root for the most evil people in the world. One advantage this film had was making its protagonist stand out from the lowlifes and have a reason behind his misdeeds, but I still didn't love the film your ranking 121 out of 193 my ranking 147 out of 193 pretty close all things considered yeah not too far I apart think, yeah. so uh yeah i i can see his point i think that it's a fair a uh, fair thing to say about the film yep i do too it did not age it it, it aged neutrally for <laughs> right. me i have my opinion has not changed yeah i don't think uh, mine has either should we tell the people where we're from where are we from Everybody, this is the next reel. I'm Pete Wright, and there is Andy Nelson. Hello. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the final in our series on the great films of 1939 with Howard Hawks, Postal Service Adventure, Only Angels Have Wings. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're an air boss yourself or just another jock, you should head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge with Steven. And for that, we're off once again to Scotland for a full report from the air boss himself, Steven Smart. Hey guys, Steven here. 
So this week's challenge had everyone stumped until MH7 and a newcomer at The Other Scotty figured it out. This week's movie was Hoot from 2006, a family film starring Logan Lerman, Luke Wilson and the wonderful Lee Larson. So congrats at The Other Scotty, you're entered to win the Pony Prize. And as always, a new challenge starts Friday, so... Thanks, guys, and uh, see you later. All right, Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. I think I should go first because mine's a little bit of a downer and yours can bring us back up a little bit. Jeez. (laughs) My trailer is for the English language remake, because we're always looking to do more of those, of the, I believe, Argentine film... El Secreto de Sus Ojos, The Secret in Their Eyes, uh, made in 2009 by Juan José Campanella, or Campanella. Uh, This is just the English secret in their eyes. They went very direct with the title. Uh, Directed by Billy Ray, who we like, right? I I think we do. I think we do. This is his third third directed film, Shattered Glass and Breach are the first two. And uh, and then he's done quite a bit of writing. Um, I'd forgotten that he directed uh, Shattered Glass. I love that film. Yeah, it's a very interesting film. And uh, it just goes to show that uh, when, with the right director, Hayden Christensen can actually do something on screen. <laughs> so, God. Well, am I right, though? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm he not needed saying a better you're director. Wrong. I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> Jeez, man. Oh, no pulling right. your punches. Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, I'm getting ready for, <laughs> for the next two shows. Oh, uh, yes. But uh, he has written quite a bit. Um, Volcano, everybody's favorite <laughs> Destruction of L.A. movie. That was the Hearts. one with uh, James Bond, right? With Pierce Brosnan? No, no. Nope, nope. Or was that, that with... was Dante's Peak. That was Dante's the... Peak. Of course it was. <laughs> this is the one with uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, right, right. The other right, Pierce Brosnan. Right, right. Uh, and he wrote Hearts War, Suspect Zero, Flight Plan, State of Play, the original Hunger Games film, and Captain Phillips. And this is uh, the next film that he's writing and directing. It looks just like a heartbreaking, <laughs> just terrifying film for anyone who is a father or a mother of a daughter. Um, Julia Roberts, Nicole Kidman. And everybody's uh, favorite, uh, Chewy, Chewetel Ejiofor, they are working at, it looks like a law firm, and um, they find Julia Roberts' daughter dead in a dumpster. A law and, firm? I, no, they, or, they're are not they, in a law firm. <laughs> they're uh, agents of the like FBI. Oh, yes, you're right. Sorry, FBI agents. I don't know where I got law firm. I a saw law DA. firm. They're, they're the worst yeah. attorneys ever. <laughs> Yes, FBI investigators. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Um, and they find her daughter in a dumpster, and they have to figure out what they're going to do. They have to let this guy, uh, they catch the guy, and they have to let him off. And, and then the kind of story, it looks like it progresses for 13 years as they kind of get back into it, trying to track him down and bring him to justice, whether through the legal means or not. And it looks <laughs> like... Spoiler! Yeah, well, the trailer doesn't hold back at all. It looks, uh, it looks like a really good film. It looks like a hard film to watch, um, kind of like Prisoners, one of those sorts of yep. films. Um, it has Dean Norris in it, Michael Kelly. It's got a lot of great actors in it, 
And it just really is a punch to the gut. And, um, you know, sometimes those are good. Prisoners certainly was, and I really enjoyed that film. This looks like it's going to be a very strong film, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Uh, I was mad at you when you sent the trailer. I'm still a little <laughs> bit mad at you. It makes me, it made me sick a little bit. Uh, as a dad of a daughter, I had a tough time watching it. But at least they were nice enough to to note in the trailer that, you know, even though they they found the daughter dead in a dumpster that they were kind enough to bleach her inside and out i don't even know right. that that's awful that's a, it does sound you horrible. can't you don't unhear that no no you're welcome everybody <laughs> uh i am very excited a- about the movie as mad as i am at you uh i uh, really am excited to see it it looks great and isn't it funny that we live in an era where we we put julia roberts and nicole kidman in the same film it's a very exciting time. Instead <laughs> of my history, days, Andy. <laughs> uh, I think they're. I think they look great. I think this looks like a great, uh, great team. I'm very excited to see it. I am too. I really do like Julia Roberts, and I just feel like she hit a point where she's really been struggling trying to find the right role, and this looks like a strong role for yep. her. I, I agree. Yeah. When does it come out? Did you say? Uh, no, I didn't. It comes out October twenty third. All right. Just in time for Halloween. Hey, speaking of holidays, (laughs) I got one. What's that? Uh, You know, if you take Silver Linings Playbook and you mash it all up with a little bit of uh, American Hustle and maybe uh, just a a smidge of Scarface, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you have David O. Russell's next film. It's called Joy. And uh, it is the story of uh, four generations, a family across four generations, and the woman who rises to become the founder and matriarch of a powerful family business dynasty. The trailer doesn't give that away. Uh, In fact, I would not have been able to tell you that had I not gone and read the IMDb profile after I had seen the trailer. Um, The trailer starts with this beautiful sort of fable, almost a fable, where you have the the mother telling a little girl, you're going to grow up, you're going to be something, you're going to make beautiful things, that's what you're going to be. And uh, the daughter uh, grows up to be Jennifer Lawrence, who plays Joy. The film also stars uh, Bradley Cooper, Dasha Polanco, Elizabeth Rom, Robert De Niro, Virginia Madsen, Edgar Ramirez, Isabella Rossellini, uh, Drena De Niro, and uh, Diane Ladd. Oh, Donna Mills. Hey, how can you... How can you leave out Donna Mills? Anyhow, so all these people come together, and the story, you see this fable kind of unfold in the trailer, and then it goes bananas. And it turns out the <laughs> matriarch ends up closing out the trailer uh, with a, you know, shooting a shotgun into, uh, into the middle distance. Uh, it is, it, it ends up, it starts out sweet, ends up very intense. Uh, and I think it looks like it's going to be uh, another one of those that I actually like from old David O. Russell, and I'm excited to see it. Uh, it, it has sort of a tone. I'm just going to say it. It has a little bit of a tone of Three Kings that I like so much. That's what I felt when I saw it. What do you think? Interesting. I didn't feel the Three Kings <laughs> vibe. <laughs> it, it, it definitely had more of a Silver Linings playbook sort of vibe for me. Just, you know, just maybe it's just the cast, Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. It, it would be the cast. Together. Yeah, it would have an impact. That certainly it. helps. But um, it's, it's so hard to figure out what it's about. Like you said, I didn't get anything about some sort of family business dynasty other than maybe something having to do with violence and guns because of the gun that she starts learning how to shoot at the end of the trailer here. But 
Uh, it looks interesting. I mean, I always enjoy going and watching a David O. Russell film. I, I think that he is a very strong filmmaker. I don't always end up liking all of his films uh, incredibly, but I still would say that I generally like them. So yeah. um, this this looks like an interesting one. It looks like one that is definitely worth seeing. I am really hoping that the trailers don't get to a place where they're really giving stuff away because I like this trailer the way it is. And I would love to go into this film just having seen this trailer and using that as just kind of my benchmark for what to expect and then really getting surprised by the film. I'm really glad you said that. I agree with you. I think I don't need a trailer, too. I don't need a character trailer. I don't need any other trailers. I just need this one, and this is enough to get me out to the theater to see this film. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this one opens on Christmas Day, uh, December 25th, 2015. So uh, there you go. Fill everybody with a little bit of joy. It's classified in the biography comedy drama categories. It's a biography hmm. of the matriarch, mafia matriarch. Is it based on something? I don't know. I don't know. You think I? You think I would have uh, researched that? But you'd be wrong. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <sighs> hey, Pete. Andy. Pete. is Barranca, a South American banana port where men live by their daring and women by their charm. Out of the fog steps a girl with a questionable past and a devil-may-care future. Out of the clouds drops a man with a propeller blade for a heart and an expert's eye for a pretty face. Cora's girl? No, I do especially. So much the better. The only thing I can tell you about him, he's a good guy for gals to stay away from. Thanks, I'll remember that. Hey, little chum, don't go walking around on it. Come on, it's sprain it. Come here. Well, look, well, let me put you down somewhere. Look at it. It's not sprained. Look, I just lost the heel off my slipper, that's all. And I have the darndest luck. Losing one heel right after another. You're a queer duck, Bonnie. So are you. Only angels have wings. Created by the wizardry of a master picture maker, Howard Hawks, in the shining tradition of filmdom's mightiest achievements. This is it, Andy. 1939. It's the end of our series of the great films of 1939. Only angels have wings. And after seeing this film, I can tell you, I also had not seen it. It's another one that I thought I might have seen. It turns out I had not seen. <laughs> I, I have, it turns out, a terrible memory for that. This has been a rough series. That is very funny. I definitely knew I had never seen this, and this was definitely a first-timer for me, and I uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, as did I. Director Howard Hawks, writer Jules Firth Firthman, Jules Firthman, uh, and uh, stars Cary Grant, Gene Arthur, awesome, Richard Barth Barthelmus, Barthelmus, yeah. uh, and the, the young Rita Hayworth. I, I sort of can't believe we haven't done a Rita Hayworth film, and yet you know, here she... it is. She gave good face. <laughs> so, so they say. Uh, Thomas Mitchell as a kid, and uh, Sig Ruman as Dutchy. Ah, uh, Sig. Sig. Back in action. Sig. <laughs> uh, this was a this was a wonderful cast. Uh, in a, I'm going to say I this was a I had a great time watching this. Good film. <laughs> How's that? 
I think that works. It was an interesting film. It took me a while to really connect with it. In fact, I don't know if I ever really connected with it. Right. But I, but I enjoyed it. And by the time it ended, I was like, ah, okay. Well, that's an interesting <laughs> one to check off the list. But it has been one that I've been kind of stewing on for days now. And it's grown on me a little more. How so? And I, I, I would still say I liked it okay. But I just found the story interesting. I liked that there was this level of darkness with the story. It, it, there's a wonderful blend of these characters. And you, it's, I mean, basically, you get all these, these male pilots, uh, male as in they're delivering the mail, flying in some South American uh, com- uh, country. We don't know which one. I've Bar- actually Barranca. read some. Barranca. I, I, I've read some reviews that say it's Peru, some say Ecuador, some just most just say it's just generic South America in a fictional city, Barranca, as you said. Because they do have the Andes. I mean, they are talking about the Andes, right? They are talking about the Andes, yes. And um, uh, this wonderful group of these these pilots who, uh, it's it's a fantastic group of people. They have a great uh, rapport. They have a great working relationship. Just everything about them is really uh, is interesting to watch. And the ladies who kind of come into that world, it's nice how they interact. And uh, initially, I was like, okay. I mean, it was it was it was kind of an odd blend of of these two stories. But as time went on, I just kept thinking about how dark the story really was, and how these pilots would constantly be flying off to try to make it over the mountains and deliver their mail only to um, possibly die or not make it or and crash their plane which we see happen a couple times and it's pretty it's pretty horrific and the attitude that the other pilots have about that is is it's just kind of such a shocking attitude and and we're really coming into this with Bonnie Lee, Jean Arthur's character. So she's kind of our surrogate into this world. And our reaction is kind of her reaction, complete shock at how they just kind of dismiss these deaths. But really, it's because they have to keep going and, and make this job happen. And I guess that's the part of it that really stuck with me, is just this this interesting working situation that these guys were in, and how dark it was and how... It certainly is not something that uh, it, it would would really fly these days. I mean, I think uh, you know, I think people would be arguing for uh, for the uh, safety inspectors to come in and make sure that things that there were some more rules and the unions would be um, kind of uh, battening the hatches uh, and making sure that the planes didn't go up in these terrible storms, etc. But um, at the time when people just had to do it. And they uh, knew that they might die doing it. It became, uh, you know, it, something that really carried heavy weight with these characters. And it created this really interesting relationship in this group. And that's what has just drawn me back to it. Just the way that these these pilots would kind of, kind of react with each other and react to situations that happened. I agree with you. It, it has an interesting sense of... Uh, sort of, 
I, I don't know, I'll, I'll say post-war sort of mentality, right? You, you very much feel like these guys are, are warriors, uh, are soldiers, and uh, maybe some of them had been soldiers, maybe some, whatever, uh, you know, the case, you get the feeling that they, you know, they treat their jobs very much like every day they go up and they may not come back, and you, they have to keep that arm's length sort of masculine distance. And, and that sort of sexism, uh, really comes into play too. The that uh, you know they they sort of live hard, and that's one of the things that you see. You know, watching both Gene Arthur and Rita Hayworth trying to sort of adjust to that, uh, to the stories that they are going to hear, the stories that they are going to be able to partake in, and those that they simply will not. Uh, and over the course of the film, you get this interesting sort of transition as as the the male characters sort of turn and and uh maybe we see a little bit of a softer side um we see a little bit more of their uh, willingness to uh, to engage uh in in the kinds of feelings that they may be having as they as they lose kind of one another and and uh, uh i think that's a re- it's played in a really interesting way very much close to i think howard hawk's vest so to speak but um but it's in there and it, and i found it I found that tension between his, uh, what I read as his willingness to let go of some of that message and some of that sentiment, uh, and his natural, uh, um, you know, his natural uh, bent to play the more hard-driving characters in the film. I found that really interesting. Like, I was walking that line with him, uh, and I really liked it. Uh, But, uh, you know, for me, the real standout character, I mean, Cary Grant was great. Um, but Jean Arthur was the real standout character for most of the film for me. I just found her super charming, and anytime she was on screen, uh, I loved her. Yes, absolutely easy to love. I, I mean, she was already uh, somebody that we liked quite a bit from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but she was, in that film, a very cynical person. She had been turned by the system, and it's not until the end with uh, Jefferson Smith's, uh, you know, his filibuster that she starts to turn and kind of become that softer character. Here, right from the start, she's just so so much warmer and um, just easy to love. And she comes into this and we are, like I said, she's our surrogate. We are connected to her right away. So it just makes it so easy to just be uh, connected to her through the film as somebody that we just want to be with. It's funny. She's, she really is, you know, we, we see her, she's not the character of transformation, right? That we, that we see in the film. I mean, she doesn't really change so much in terms of teaching us as audience the the lessons of the film. Uh, But we do see her play an incredibly adaptable character. And in the first 20 minutes, when they lose, uh, is it, uh, it's Joe they lose first, I believe. Right, yeah. Uh, When they lose Joe, and, uh, you know, they have their rituals. The ritual is when the pilot's down, all the other pilots come in and Joe doesn't exist anymore. They, they, you know, each are having their drinks and they're eating their meals and they're carrying on their conversations and their party of the evening. And if anybody mentions, hey, where's Joe? They say, Joe, I don't know any Joe. Have you seen a Joe? We don't know any Joe. There's no Joe here. Right. That's an interesting sort of ritual of these soldiers. And she has a real hard time with that. And then we see her adapt to the to the uh, to the, the lay of the land, she adapts to the to to that very very quickly, and and uh, ends up being sort of the center of the party as a she's a kind of a showman herself, 
and uh, ends up sitting down at the piano and leading, um, well, leading some great musical numbers. That's right. That's right. I I am a little torn. I, I want to say that she is the change character in this film. I mean, I'm not sure who else really changes. I, I feel like it is her. It's a subtle change. And, and you're talking about adapting. I think a, lo- a lot of that largely is the change that she makes over the course of the film. She goes from being somebody who can't can't understand this mentality and wants wants so badly for Jeff, Cary Grant's character, to ask her to be there and to be somebody who will be a part of his life. And he doesn't change, although he does give her that little clue at the end, which is such a wonderful moment when he gives her that that double side or that coin with two heads. And um, and says, you know, heads heads you'll stay, tails you leave. That was his subtle way of asking her to stay, and because he's not going to do it. But I, I but I do find that she does kind of make that change where she almost now has become willing to kind of accept this life that is not a life she would ever have wanted initially because it's such a painful life to deal with this this life where they have to so um, cavalierly throw away their feelings about somebody when they die and yet when we get to the end she is now willing to stay and be a part of Jeff's life um, even though um, she knows that you know she's going to have to kind of close herself off to some of those emotions. I, you know, I hear that and I, I see your point, but I still think Cary Grant's character is the one to watch in terms of the lessons of the film, because for him, uh, you know, we have, we have the orbit of his demonstrated inability to commit, right? I mean, his mm-hmm. he has run away from Rita Hayworth. She's the old girlfriend. She comes back into into his life, and we get to experience that. He's told us that that he left because he doesn't because he he doesn't uh, he's not able to have an intimate relationship with women. Uh, he's you know we they beat that into us over the course of the film, which makes uh, first of all, which makes when he is when he he sits down with kids, uh, you know, relics after kid yeah. dies. Uh, we see him cry for the first time. Right. Uh, that shows uh, uh, sort of we're peeling back the onion on his journey toward intimacy. And then finally, you're right, that climactic moment at the end when he tosses the coin and gives it to her. Uh, that's his way of actually asking her to stay. And he knows he's asking her to stay. It's a nod and a wink to the audience. And and I think when he walks out that door, he's a changed man. She is as blessedly sappy as she was the day she walked in and fell in love with him that first night. Um, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I, I've learned much from her, certainly not as much as I learned from Cary Grant's character. Did, yeah, you did I sway you? Well, I think that you're, you've made a very strong point, and I actually really agree with everything that you've said about Jeff's character changing in the film. I think he definitely does have that very subtle transformation over the course of it, but I think she does too. So I think it's an interesting case where, I mean, because I, I think there's more to just saying that she's adapting herself to it. I do think that she has to change to fit in with this world, and she agrees to stay at the end. She was going to go on the boat, but doesn't she agree to stay? When he, again uh, he and gets, again he and the ag- coin, yeah. again and again and again, though. I mean, that was she sort of quote agreed to stay when she stayed, you know, the very first night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. You know, that was that was 20 minutes or 30 minutes into the film. Yeah, she does stay quite a bit. <laughs> she's a stayer. I mean, she's a stayer. 
You think uh, you know? You think if Carrie Grant's going to have some challenges with the because she's always going to stay. She is. She's predictably always going to stay. She's no Rita Hayworth who's going <laughs> to who's going to leave. Well, and that gets us to this uh, to the 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 B story. I, I guess it's uh, really not not the B story, but um, it, it's the story of um, McPherson and uh, and uh, uh, let's see his wife Bat Bat McPherson and Judy mm-hmm. McPherson. Uh, and, uh, and so that story is, uh, it's an interesting one. So McPherson, who's actually not McPherson, his real name is, what was it? Kilgore? Kil, Kilgary? Something? I think something like that. Uh, he, uh, was a, a pilot who, uh, jumped out of an airplane that was going down and he had a mechanic on board and the mechanic he left on board and the plane crashed and killed the mechanic. And it turns out the mechanic was the brother of Kid Dab, played by uh, Thomas Mitchell. And Kid is a, was a, a partner of and a pilot with uh, Jeff Carter, Cary Grant's character. And so uh, he is now this this uh, Kilgore is now uh, under the name of McPherson, and he comes to town with his his wife uh, Rita Hayworth, and he is the new pilot. And so everybody knows uh, very quickly that this was the guy who bailed out and killed Kid's brother. And that creates some tension amongst the ranks, and uh, and gives McPherson something to work for. That being acceptance into the group uh, or making the decision to leave. Right. And uh, and how do you? I mean, how do you feel about that uh, that relationship? How that unfolds? I like it. I I think it's uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean, this is a guy who's just looking for a job, and so the only way he can really get back in is by agreeing to take all of the most dangerous missions that no one else will take. Um, aside from the fantastic uh, action sequences that uh, that we have, that Hawks gives us, I think that, uh, that Richard Barthelmess handles the role quite nicely. It's kind of subtle. I just like the way that he plays it very low-key and kind of comes in as this guy who's not accepted and knows it and has to work his way back up by taking these really crummy jobs, even though he is a skilled pilot, as we see. I think it's a, um, I think it's a strong element to the story, and I think it's a nice highlight to the situation going on with Cary Grant and uh, Gene Arthur, as far as seeing this other husband and wife as she's getting frustrated that he does these jobs. She kind of wants to you know bail on him because of this stuff and i it's it's a nice i, I mean it, it is kind of a b story it, it, it's a b relationship story going on in the film and i think it i think it works nicely in contrast to the other one it's it's funny when you look at at his introduction um it it is part of this sort of bouquet of <laughs> of uh, disruption that occurs to the men of this of this flight crew right Mm -hmm. uh he comes in and obviously that creates disruption but from there on it's a series of like bizarre little disruptions like like dominoes falling uh you know we get broken arms we get uh you know burnt hands we get burnt faces we get uh you know uh, carrie grant gets shot uh (laughs) and my goodness can he handle a bullet that's right (laughs) Oh yes, I, I think the the most intense line of of his post uh, shooting uh, sequence was uh, "Get me a drink." 
<laughs> or get the doctor who does not speak English. <laughs> right. That's pretty good, too. Uh, but anyway, things are falling apart, and they're, they're little symbols of how things are falling apart, and sometimes they're really big statements about how they're falling apart. But other, either way, they're really falling apart, and so you get the sense that Jeff uh, is having to walk quite a tight wire to keep things together, uh, all the while dealing with his own, you know, the, the stayer. Uh, who is always just sort of around, whether she's sitting down with the rest of the crew or whether she's taking a bath in his bedroom without his permission. She's always there, and uh, he has to kind of deal with it. And I just, I thought it worked really well. I had not seen any of uh, Barthelmus's films. I'm looking through this list. I have not seen any of them. He was, he's got 79 credits. His last film was The Mayor of 44th Street in 1942. Started working in 1916. I got nothing. He is one, um, I can say that uh, I was very familiar with him from my uh, film, the silent film history class that I took, because very, very big in the silent era. Broken Blossoms uh, and Way Down East, a couple films from D.W. Griffith Griffith that I saw. Um, So I was very familiar with him from those. I don't think I had ever seen him in anything that he did in the sound era. He was one of those actors who really had a hard transition from the silent to the sound films. And at one point, I guess, um, after he started working in the sound films, he had some plastic surgery to try to remove some bags under his eyes. And it sounded like it was kind of a, a bit of a botched surgery and it left some kind of little X's under his eyes or something, some little scars that he would always try to hide, but Howard Hawks actually liked them and, and um, had them uh, as he didn't have, he didn't have them cover them up with makeup so that you could kind of see them in this film. I don't really recall seeing them that heavily in this film. No, certainly not. But uh, I thought that was definitely an interesting little note. Um, And uh, he kept acting for uh, quite a while into the, uh, just a few more years after this, but um, he never quite got uh, got where he was in the Hollywood system once the sound era started. But I mean, the silent era, he was at one point, I think, the highest paid actor out there. So Wow. Yeah. yeah no idea. That, that was news to me. Yeah, it's big. It's one of those things, you know, when you change something like sound, uh, silent to sound, and all of a sudden, a lot of really popular actors just could not find the work that they once got. Is that, uh, okay, an aside here, based on your uh, encyclopedic uh, knowledge of film technology, <laughs> would you say that the transition from uh, silent to sound has been the biggest uh, transition in cinematic history, technologically? Well, it certainly changed the the storytelling. So, I mean, that probably would be one of the biggest. I mean, color film, I think, was a pretty big one. Um, And then just uh, so many levels of the special effects and everything. But I I think adding sound to a film, and it's like like adding 3D. 3D is another big one, although, albeit not nearly as popular as sound. (laughs) Yeah. Sound is pretty much 100%. In every film if, that we if see you could, these days. If you could go back and they actually give you a choice. All right, Andy, you're going to choose the future path of, of movie making technology. Would you choose to add sound or 3D? <laughs> Real D, 3D, but they'd be silent films. <laughs> they'd be silent and films. We'd be watching Titanic in 3D, silent with a piano. Or D box. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, well, those organ, well, those, when the organ plays, <laughs> it really shakes things up. I can uh, feel it all around me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really uh, changed, changed the course of history. Sound, <laughs> sound or 3D or a D-box. That's good. Wow. Oh, my. Uh, let's talk about Rita Hayworth. Yeah, uh, this was really kind of, I guess, her first big film. This was the the film that really kind of uh, made people want to put her in more movies. And Howard Hawks didn't want to put her in this. He had uh, somebody else in mind. I can't remember who. And um, But the uh, I think it was Harry Cohn at uh, Columbia who was kind of like, no, you're going to use her. And so he had to use her and i don't think he was very happy about that but he did and you know she did a great job i don't think he was horribly upset with her in the film and uh like i said she went on to become quite the uh quite the face everybody loved seeing her um her film in 1946 gilda is probably one of the ones she's most well known for but she was quite the uh song and dance lady as well so uh she was in quite a number of those with uh with uh fred astaire and uh yeah she's one of those who uh like i noted earlier uh madonna brought her up in her song so she's <laughs> she's made it she, she did she did you know <laughs> yeah I did not catch that reference until like 10 minutes after you said it, the give good face thing. I didn't catch that. I thought you were being lewd. Turns out you were just conjuring Madonna, which I'm, I'm now chalking up to probably one of your guiltier pleasures that you just don't uh, maybe. To talk about. <laughs> maybe. There's uh, no guilt in liking Madonna, <laughs> Pete. What are you talking about? Uh, the actress that you uh, did not uh, have at the tip of your tongue was Dorothy Comingore. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I I had something else to uh, say about Rita. Hay- oh, Rita Hayworth. You you say she's a song and dance. Uh, she's got a song and dance thing going on. I did not actually know she was the daughter of Eduardo Casino, um, uh, the uh, the Spanish famous Spanish dancer. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I, I, didn't, I didn't either. even know she was Spanish. I didn't either. So there you her, go. Her name is not Rita Hayworth. It's Margarita Carmen Cantino. There it is. So, did you know that she was married to Orson Welles? I, you know, I, I, uh, I did know that, but only just a few seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> only uh, just now. <laughs> only just now. Um, who else was she married to? You gonna, you want to talk about that? Or she was married to Edward C. Judson, Orson Welles, Prince Ali Khan, Dick Harnes, Hames, and James Hill. So, in addition to being a talented singer and dancer, she was also a good spouse. She, she was. a lot of or, practice. Or, to some, maybe a bad spouse. Maybe a bad one. <laughs> Whatever the case, she was practicing often her craft. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, sure. I did like her in this film. I thought she was great. It's interesting to see, and I'm sure she comes with the baggage of the name, and having not done any Rita Hayworth films on this uh, show before, seeing her whenever she entered the screen i have to imagine that when we were that that would it would have been a similar experience to you know i brought up uh wolf of wall street not having known margot robbie right mm-hmm. that's kind of the experience that i have a feeling i would have had in 1939 seeing this film that wow she's there's a that's a, an attractive woman but i i don't know who she is and i'll bet we'll see more of her seeing the movie now 
um, it, it made me think, wow, that's that woman's a star. She's a, a, a knockout star, and I, you know, she is in this sort of B story that she just sort of comes in and out of the room, and I'm stunned that she's not in the film more. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, I, I found myself sort of uh, frustrated by that. So I, I, I had to meter my expectations a little bit. Right, because it's, it's such an early role. It just yeah. wasn't that big of a part. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's, uh, that's, the, that's the, uh, the McPhersons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who else is on your mind? Have we talked about uh, Cary Grant before? I'm trying to remember. Well, yeah. What did we? What film of his did we talk about? I'm didn't blanking we, right now. Didn't we? Uh, I'm sure we've talked about Cary Grant, and yet I can't think of. Him. Well, that's that's the thing. Is like he's so famous, he's so well known that it's like I, everybody kind of knows who Cary Grant is. But it, it's like, gosh, but did we talk about a film I, of his? I see. Now I was sort of moving on, thinking, well, we don't need to talk. We don't need to talk much about him because we've talked about him before. But I actually have oh, to go. We did talk about him Cary. in The Bishop's Wife. Grant. That's right. Oh, thank goodness. Huh. I'm actually searching our website. (laughs) There you go. Gary Grant, where are you? Yes, yes, The Bishop's Wife. But I think that may be the only film of his that we talked about. Episode 167, if anybody wants to hear. Yeah. uh, Talk about that. That that is right. That is the only film, (laughs) according to the search on our site, that brings up (laughs) Gary Grant. Uh, How do you think he did in this film? Uh, he's great. I really love him in just kind of this period, bringing up Baby, Philadelphia Story, His Girl Friday, Arsenic and Old Lace, Notorious. Uh, he's just so good in the 30s, 40s. I, I have so much fun watching him. He also did Gunga Din this year, which I haven't seen. That may be in one of our future 1939 series, but uh, now I really want to see it because I just have so much fun watching him. I think he's he's great in this. He plays just such a... Uh, you almost want to say callous the way that he comes off, but in, until you really learn kind of their methodology and, and why they are the way they are. But um, I, I don't know. I, I really liked him in this. I think there was a, there was a little bit of a different Cary Grant that I hadn't seen with that. Element yeah. To it. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. I, I, I felt the same way. Um, and it, it made it that much more rewarding when you see more of his sensitive side at the end of the film. I really enjoyed that. And yet, he ends with that same kind of rambunctiousness of, uh, you know, when they, they race off together, these two pilots, uh, each with one arm, because the other is broken or shot. Uh, <laughs> and they, they race off to, to fly this, uh, you know, when the weather clears, they go fly another mail run. run. That's, that is their, their sort of sworn duty, and that's, all, that's what they exist to do. And I, I just love that sort of frivolousness. You, you get the sense that he's just a kid, uh, and, and it's Christmas morning, and he gets to go get behind the stick of that plane and take it over the mountains. I thought that was fantastic. It feels very Howard Hoxian, very just kind of like boys' adventure yes. sort of thing. It really does. Um, yeah. Let's take a break just for a second and talk a little bit about visual effects. Um, mm. This this was nominated. Did it win for best effects? No, no. That would do, that would be uh, our old friend. Oh, uh, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. That's right. <laughs> of course, uh, we've. I would have known that. Um, it did not win for, but I. It, it it did get nominated for Best Visual Effects, and I think that was the only thing it was nominated for. It was also nominated for Best Black and White Cinematography, oh, yeah. and that went to Wuthering Heights. So it didn't win anything, but 
Although it was, uh, it was, uh, what's his name? Joseph Walker, who we've talked about before. Yes. What did you think of it? I liked it. I liked the cinematography. I thought it looked very nice. Um, I liked the, well, the effects specifically is what you're asking. Well, particularly I, the past, like the weather, the past. Like they, this really is a film where one of the major characters, certainly the biggest obstacle in the film is the weather. Um, right. You know, whether it's snow or torrential monsoon rain. Yep. It was a, uh, I, I really liked the the way that they made all the flying look, I thought they actually, it was very, very well done. Both the models that they used as well as the, uh, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm assuming that it was a rear screen projection when they had the actors in the little, in the cockpits and they were show, filming those. And as well as the live uh, flying footage that they actually filmed. I thought all of it looked really good. I thought uh, it was, uh, it was nice. And I mean, for 1939, I was quite impressed with it. I was too. That was my that was my sense exactly. I really enjoyed the flying. I particularly enjoyed uh, the way they they did the the um, the high pass uh, across the Andes and the the lookout's house, Tex, up in the <laughs> in the side of the mountain, hanging out with his goat uh, or with his donkey. I mean, uh, I thought yeah. that was really fantastic and as the as that big three engine plane came by i i really enjoyed just how they uh built that that set uh i thought it was great um the the piece that i i, I don't know i the kids kids death uh i had a problem with kids death as far as the condor crashing through the window yeah yeah i didn't i that was of, of <laughs> everything that went on in this movie i did not that was the one I didn't buy. Yeah, it, <laughs> because it you know it was, a little. they they threw a stuffed condor through the window, and he just <laughs> he like caught it, slammed it into his own face, and then fell down with a broken neck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it was a good film, but let's not take ourselves too seriously. That was a little uh, a little rough. Well, it was so funny because <laughs> I was watching this with my wife, and I'm like. They're like when he had to turn around after he was fly, trying to fly the uh, nitroglycerin over the mountain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're like, "Oh, just come back, drop all that nitro out onto the condors." <laughs> I was like, "What? What are these guys doing? This is horrible!" And they're just like bombing the birds. <laughs> so the awful. Worst. That was laugh out loud terrible. It was. I, it really was. Just. Terrible! Oh my god, I couldn't believe that's what they're doing. And then I could say, "Oh, well, this is why they're killing the condors because they crashed through <laughs> the front of the plane." But you know, not once did oh. they think. And and this is the only reason I I say this at the very end of the film. Uh, a kid dies, and McPherson's flying the plane. His his hands and face are on fire. He brings the plane in. It takes him like an hour to get to the high pass. It takes him like three minutes to get back to the to the uh, uh, to the airfield, right. Um, right? And so when you put that into the context of dropping nitroglycerin into the high mountains, doesn't that once make the pilot stop and think, "Gosh, I I may be causing an avalanche that could crush <laughs> all of my fa- my friends and and the villagers." Not once did any of that come up, right? Just indiscriminately <laughs> dropping explosives. Yeah, mountains. just dump them up there. <laughs> it's just awful. 
Or even hit the, you know, it's it's so close to their guy who who lives up there. Right. The little mountain guy. Right. The donkey. is Ridiculous. <laughs> oh, that and was And yet, crazy. even so, I forgive it because I did have a really enjoyable time. Uh, yes, and I, 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 I do need to make a correction. I foolishly threw out Gone with the Wind because it won everything else. But it, it did didn't. not actually win special effects. Well, see, the I 19- immediately went to the burning of the of Atlanta, and I thought, well, of course, that would have won. What won? That, that's what I was thinking, too. It was actually The Rains Came, uh, special effects uh, by E.H. Hansen, who did the sound, and Fred Saracen, who did the uh, photographic effects. That's the film that won. Gone with the Wind did not win. Just everything effects. else. Just everything else. That's right. right. Uh, anybody else you want to talk to? We, I think but we, sh- we need to talk about, uh, obviously, Dimitri Tjomkin, uh, who did the music. Yes, I, I thought he did a swell job here. Just swell? Just swell. All right. All right. Well, we don't need to belabor swell. And then, of course, I think Howard Hawks is the first time we've, we've done a Howard Hawks film. I think this is. I do think that uh, this is the first film that we've uh, talked about with his. This is his... Was it his second or third film that he... I think this is his second film with Cary Grant after uh, Bringing Up Baby. Bringing Up Baby, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, he is a uh, kind of the man's man sort of director. He uh, served in World War One, and I, it sounds like that's kind of where he got some of his sensibilities. And just made an incredible wide variety of films. Anything from gangster films, Scarface... Talking, speaking of Roaring Twenties, a couple weeks or last week, I guess. Yeah. Um, bringing up Baby, I already mentioned uh, His Girl Friday, Sergeant York, To Have and Have Not, The Big Sleep, Red River, The Thing from Another World, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Rio Bravo. Uh, he's, you know, he's kind of all over the place genre-wise, and he made just a lot of really great films. I, uh, I, I think that uh, he's one of those directors who could. Uh, latch on to a project and to a story and whatever the genre was, he found a way to tell it well. I think you hit it for me. And and I have seen uh, a number of Howard Hawks films and I think it's because it feels like a boy's adventure. Every film I see feels like, makes it feel like I'm, you know, this sort of just 10-year-old exploring uh, whether it's the Western or the Mafia or w- whatever, uh, I feel just really attached to his style uh, and his tone, and I really like it. And I can tell. I mean, you, it feels like a Howard Hawks film. Yeah, I agree. They are very fun to watch. It, he makes a a nice variety of his films. And whether it is more of the crime drama or noir or the comedy or the sci-fi or Western or war film, he does a good job with it. He just makes it a very fun sort of film. And I think that's something that he was really good at, is making these films about a group of people doing something. And this is a a great example of that. You've got this group of pilots, and you kind of get into their world, and we get to know their world really well. And, And he... He makes it feel like I mean we we always talk about world building. This world of these guys, odd, strange story about a group of Americans who are flying mail down here. I have no idea why it's they're all Americans, but it is what it is. I really understand their world. I get the way that everything is set up with this bar and this uh, it's kind of half bar half. 
store, half all these guys hang out place. Uh, the main kind of the focus of the story is right there in this one location. It's all uh, focused so well on this world that I feel like it's been around for a long time. And I just, I get it, you know? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it better. There's this, uh, I, I felt... You probably could have said it better. No, no, no. I, I very <laughs> took much... took me a while to get there. <laughs> felt this sense of of place in, in the, the set. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like I these guys were absolutely at home. And it's interesting to see a film that feels like there is so much activity and so much motion in it that really essentially could have been a play. Um, you know, it's it it is a, a single location sort of staged event, and um, you know that I, I think cutting away to the uh, you know the planes that that gives us um, the the sense that this has a, a, a broader scope than it does, and it, it it really is a is an intimate production uh, that feels much larger than it is. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, anyone else on your list that's uh, that's hot you want to talk about? Um, I think we pretty much ran through it. I mean, we mentioned Sig Ruman. It's great seeing him again in here. And, of course, good old Thomas Mitchell. It's mm-hmm. always wonderful seeing him pop up again. The crew, I, I think I mentioned Joseph Walker. This is, uh, you know, another another one of uh, his films in uh, 1939. We already talked about him with uh, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Just a, uh, a fantastic cinematographer who was born in Denver. I just Hey, fancy that. There you go. Home turf. There you go. There you go. How did and, you... Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, uh, and the only other thing that I was really going to bring up is that this this show, along with Raiders of the Lost Ark, kind of inspired a TV series in the early 80s called Tales of the Gold Monkey, which doesn't ring a bell to me at all. It was a 1982 adventure TV show. Wow, yeah, uh, nothing. The series featured the romance of early aviation, exotic locales, and cliffhanging action. It was aired following the success of the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. The only reason I bring this up is because Tales of the Gold Monkey actually inspired the 1990 TV series Tailspin, which I uh, <laughs> will admit was a little bit of a guilty pleasure at that time of my life, which it really shouldn't have been. I should have been done with those <laughs> at that age, but... Yes, yes. Disney afternoon, what can I say? That's pretty good. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's good to know. Ah, guilty pleasures. Hey, <laughs> it's all guilty pleasures. It's all coming out, man. It's all coming out. <laughs> I feel better being a part of that conversation. <laughs> yes. How did it do? Did you find anything? I found uh, a few little bits. I could, you know... Like we've said, these films in this uh, period are really hard to find information on, unless it's Gone with the Wind, which has been tracked ridiculously. I couldn't find anything as far as budget numbers for this, but I did find that it made roughly $2.63 million domestically, uh, which is about $44 million. And, uh, you know, so it did pretty well for itself. And actually, on this side, I actually found some information about the Roaring Twenties, surprise, surprise, which actually made just slightly more than this, about $2.68 million, so, uh, which is almost $45 million. So Roaring Twenties did slightly better than Only Angels Have Wings, but neither of them did as well as Gone with the Wind or Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which are both way up there. Mm-hmm. And deservedly so. Sure. All right. I think we should rank it. 
Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, everybody, and sign up for an account if you don't have one. And then friend us, like us, be a party to this conversation and see if your stack rankings line up with our stack rankings. Uh, and we'll see. I, I'm going to feel pretty good if this film lands somewhere in the middle. I think that's going to be about right. Yeah, I, I think so, too. It's going to be hard beating this first one. Only angels have wings or hot fuzz. Oh. I'm going to say hot fuzz. Yeah, I'm going to say hot fuzz. <laughs> Only angels have wings or the sandlot. I, you know, I would go with Only Angels Had Wings on this one. This is interesting because after I first watched this, I probably would have picked The Sandlot. But this, like I said, is a film that I've been kind of stewing on for days. And now I feel like I would say Only Angels Have Wings. So there you go. There you go. All right. Only Angels Have Wings or La Vie en Rose? Only Angels Have Wings. I concur. Only Angels Have Wings or When Harry Met Sally? (laughs) Here, I have to go with When Harry Met Sally. Yeah, we got to do Harry and Sally. Only Angels Have Wings or Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? I will say Indiana Jones, yes. Only Angels Have Wings. Internet delay. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Only Angels Have Wings or Syriana? I would say Syriana. Yeah, probably Syriana. This is really slow. Come on. Only Angels Have Wings or your favorite, Field of Dreams. I will say Field of Dreams. I know. I'll give it to you. <laughs> All right. Stakes are pretty low at this point. Yeah. Right, right. It's a it's such a good movie, Pete. Only <laughs> Angels Have Wings or King's Row? King's Row. Hmm. I don't know. I might say Only Angels Have Wings on this one. Hmm. Over King's Row. I don't know. I'm, uh, they both have interesting dark elements that I like quite a bit. I, I, I'll I go King's Row for you. I, I'm pretty easy on this one. I think yeah. I'm pretty flexible. So okay. I'll say King's Row. All right. Yeah. I'll take your flexibility. All right. Well, there you go. 122 out of 194. All right. All right. That's all yeah. right. Somewhere in the middle-ish. Somewhere in the middle-ish. Uh, that feels pretty good. And that does end our, 19, our first 1939 uh, extravaganza. Uh, yes, indeed. I feel good about this. We were looking forward to it for a long time because I think there were some films in here we hadn't seen. And, yeah. Uh, and just to get a sense for why people absolutely adore 1939, I feel like I have a better vision of that. Yeah, it's nice to go back and look at these big films that were churned out when the studio system was at its peak and really see what people latch onto as far as kind of these classics that define what so many people call the best decade or the best decade, the best year of film. So it's, uh, I mean, I don't necessarily feel that all of these are like some of the best films ever, but I do feel they all represent really strong films that came out of the studio system at the time. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. I, uh, I think they, uh, you know, the, the, the suite of films that we have talked about certainly, uh, certainly cement that. And I, some of them uh, obviously made a n- non-trivial impact on us and on this show. Uh, having one of them actually shake up our top five 
is is kind of a big deal. So um, I call that a win, uh, and I'm I'm looking forward to where we go. Now I'm actually looking forward to this to doing this again next year. Yeah, I am too. I'm looking forward to. I may have to jump into some more 1939 films between now and then because I'm kind of in the mood right now. Yeah, got me all all into it. Yeah. Hey, speaking of in the mood, where do we go from here? Well, Pete, we are going to. (laughs) If people haven't been able to figure it out uh, yet, we're delving into our guilty pleasures. That's right. Mm. We've got a, a one of my guilty pleasures and one of your guilty pleasures that we're <laughs> going to be talking about. These are always uh, uh, fun to do. I uh, at least fun for us. I don't know what other people think. <laughs> I um I think we got it this year. Last year we did um the, uh, the Adventures of Buckaroo and Bonsai across the eighth dimension. That was mine. Mm-hmm. And yours was um what was it? The, the fantastic Nicholas Cage film, Knowing. Oh, no wonder I couldn't place it. Uh, <laughs> and yet still, I think with those films, I, I think there is a case to be made that you don't necessarily have to feel guilty to watch those films. This year, I think both of us, <laughs> I ascribe great guilt to myself and to you after now finishing your film in preparation for that show. We, we, <laughs> we should feel bad. About the films that we picked, <laughs> probably should. We absolutely I would, should. I wonder how many of our listeners are actually going to tune into those two episodes. You know, sometimes you got to. It's a labor of love, Andy. You got sometimes you just got to do it for you. That's right. It, it really is. <laughs> I think in this case, I can't wait to talk about it next week. We are starting it off uh, with volunteers. Yes, Nicholas Myers, 1985, Tom Hanks film with John Candy, Rita Wilson. Oh, yeah, it's going to be good. There's a reason you can't find it on streaming. Let's just say that. <laughs> you can hunt it down at a garage sale. You'll count yourself lucky or not. <laughs> there you go. That's it. Volunteers next week. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we are we are actually we're pre-recording those, and so we're going to be off for a couple of weeks and, and may not uh, be around to respond to... Uh, emails and things like that for just a little bit while we uh, take a break so um, these are these hopefully the guilty pleasures will <laughs> will provide some <laughs> sense of entertainment over the next couple of weeks but uh, uh, thanks for everybody who's written in and commented and shared the thoughts we appreciate it and we'll catch you in uh, uh, when are we going to catch them in, uh, it's in we'll August sometime early yeah, August yeah we'll catch them on our August uh, 14th-ish episode yeah. episode right. 200 Pete holy cow wow Yeah. Wow. All right. 200. Well, thanks, Andy. Uh, Until then, I got to go to bed. All right. I'm going to go drop some nitro on some condors out back. Mutual of Omaha people. (laughs) You can count on when the. Uh, would you like to count down or up? Let's count down. All right. Uh, then I bring you this hit from Tina. She says, what's bad is good. Coming in at two stars. 
Jean Arthur is probably my favorite actress of all time, but if this had been the first movie I'd ever seen her in, I would have never given her a second thought. Usually, Jean Arthur, Arthur plays strong women, even when all sweet and innocent. She's a delight. I even have a biography of her. I will not lend this movie out. I will not recommend this movie. I will not bring this movie up in conversation. If I were teaching a class on film, I would show this movie because my students could learn how far we've come since 1939 in society, behavior, aviation, safety, and the value of human and bird life. This movie shows that way back then when a pilot died, you blamed him for being a worse pilot than the flying conditions you sent him in. Then you buried him and divided up his personal belongings. You sent his sister back to the U.S. a hundred bucks, which might have been a lot of money back in 1939, but it's still a token for a human life, isn't it? You have some nitroglycerin you need to dispose of. Why not drop it on some pesky condors in the mountains? (laughs) Cary Grant's acting is a C-minus here. I thought how funny it would be just to read the script because the lines are short and, well, stupid. We've come a long way since movie dialogue was this unnatural. This is the movie that used to make fun of old movies and parodies. I have a good collection of old movies. This is going in the collection, but it isn't a favorite. I'm sorry I even bought it. I should have just rented it and not let it take up space on my shelf. I would rate this a one-star movie if I didn't like Gene Arthur and Cary Grant so much. I agree with the person who said this movie transcends time. This one doesn't. I'm entitled to not like it, just as you're entitled to love it. If you're reading the reviews to consider watching the movie, rent it, don't buy it, and decide for yourself. Wow. Because we've come a long way in society and aviation and bird life. (laughs) You know, something we didn't mention, and I don't know why your review reminded me of this. <laughs> Good, I can't wait. <laughs> but this is the film where uh, the kind of uh, people started making fun of the way Cary Grant spoke with his Judy, 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 which I can't do. I'm terrible at Cary Grant impressions. <laughs> but that this is the film where he says that to Rita Hayworth's character, whose name is Judy, although he doesn't actually say it like that. He says it like once or twice. Yeah. But it became kind of the famous... Uh, if you're going to impersonate Cary Grant, that is what you would do. Yeah. Jude, Jude, Jude. See, I did it again. And I, I thought I'd get better, but no, I think I got worse. I, uh, I'm i going to change up my ringtone on my phone, unrelated. <laughs> and that's going to be it, is you just being Judy, 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 Follow, Judy, Judy. Followed by peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> What's yours? Well, I'm torn. Now, do I do the the long one star or the short one? See, I, you got to know. I couldn't just. I couldn't truncate that. That was genius. Yeah, I know. You, you you really couldn't. You definitely couldn't. I think I'll go with the short one just right. to just to save our poor listeners. This is a one star by Ray, who just doesn't understand how the star ratings work because Ray says is a very good movie. <laughs> I think I, I think I need to do a little more Russian with yeah, that or something. Do it again. Because it feels Russian. It's a very good movie. Oh, that was a full on Chekhov. Yeah. I, 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 that, no, if it's Chekhov, I got to know. It's a very good movie. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean Pavel Chekhov. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 